everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Uh, please note that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and is not offering any personal medical advice. For that, please check with your uh, healthcare provider. Today's podcast topic is basically how to optimize your workouts. So it's really a health uh, promoting podcast. Now we're going to be talking about some diseases. And all of us want to feel healthy and stay healthy. And common sense tells us that exercise is an important component, along with diet, to really remaining vital. Now, one of, again, the main themes of this podcast is to try to get that best medical advice. You know, the kind of advice that celebrities and athletes have. I know I do, and I'm always, like, searching to see who are they working with, what are they doing, because I want to, you know, have that, you know, optimum uh, experience. And, you know, to be honest, again, you know, if you look at any of the magazines, you know, that used to be in the airports and stores, you know, the men would drift to the magazines where they saw the six-pack abs and women with the hourglass figures, which in truth, most of us don't have time or the determination to work out six hours a day or run marathons. Uh, we really exercise to feel good and to try to stay healthy. But with that being said, the majority of Americans, and myself included, struggle to carve out time for both strength training and cardio. And in fact, I think I saw a report, the CDC reported that only 31% of Americans actually do two muscle building workouts a week. So why is that? Well, I think I do know, because even in my own personal life, who has time for weights, cardio, and everything between work and family? Uh, I also think a lot of us stop exercising at times because we get injured. I know that's happened to me a lot. Or after a while, we get bored with the workout and we forget even why we're doing this. Well, my guest today, Dr. Uh, I'm sorry, my guest today, Dr. Alex Hutchinson, is a well-known science writer. He writes for the magazines Outside. He's had a regular column in Runner's World. And he also himself is a competitive athlete. He was an amateur runner, I believe, in Canada. He holds a PhD in physics from Cambridge, which is pretty cool. And he's the author of two really interesting books. And one that caught my eye when I was, you know, browsing in a bookstore, which I used to love to do. It's called, Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights? I've had this for a long time, Alex. And the other one, his more recent one, is called Endure, which got a really glowing um, forward by Malcolm Gladwell, also one of my favorite writers. And uh, so I think this is a really important topic. And uh, I'm really excited because I think I have the right person to uh, guide us on this. So I'd like to welcome Alex Hutchison to the podcast. Thanks very much, Dean. Thanks for the invitation to be here and, and for the very nice introduction. Yeah. You're almost like the second in a row uh, science journalist I had. I had uh, Moises um, Velasquez-Manoff, and he also went to Columbia's journalism school. So that must be a pretty good school. <laughs> yeah, there have been some good names that have come through, come through there over yeah. the years. Yeah, that was, I, that was always like a little partial dream. I said, if I ever had time at night to go to journalism school, I think I'd like to do that because I, I, I love stories, you know, and you, it, that's part of the thing about being a doctor. I mean, I, I really have a front row seat to so many of my patients' stories, and they're fascinating, and again, I try to help them. Anyway. So we're going to get into some of the details about working out in the best ways, because you've done a lot of the research, which is important because there's so much out there all the time that, you know, it, it, it looks like they're attention grabbers. But again, most people don't really know how to utilize it. But I want to just start with one thing, though. You know, one of my favorite writers 
on health and exercise. And you may know of him, you know, but he he was originally a columnist in uh, Runner's World was Dr. George Sheehan, right? Absolutely, yeah. And George wrote great books. You know, one of his classics was Running and Being about the whole idea of exercise. And what I loved about his books, because, you know, before you start reading his books, you may think, oh, it's all about technique and how to train because George was a, a marathoner. But really what it was about was having fun and finding enjoyment in exercise. So I know that really wasn't the focus of your book, but I'm just curious in your experience as an athlete uh, and, and maybe also talking to other athletes, how, how important is fun in this whole process? Yeah, that's a, gr a great question. And, and George Sheehan is really a, a, a an interesting role model, a great role model in terms of the way he thought about what's important in in exercise. Right. And you know, the answer, the, the, so the question is, how important is it? Yeah. If you want to, if you want to win the Olympics, um, maybe not that important. A lot of people who win the Olympics are miserable. If yeah. if if you want to still be exercising, uh, you know, I, I just turned forty seven. If you want to still be exercising when you're forty seven, you look good. <laughs> I mean, there, there's nothing more important. There's nothing more important. You know, I, I as you said, I, I came up as a competitive runner. Um, running was the most important thing in my life, and all my friends were seriously competitive runners. A lot of them, I don't know. It would be interesting to do a census. I, I, I was going to say most of them don't exercise anymore. That's maybe not true, um, well, but let, let, but let, a surprising let, let, number of them. A surprising number of them who used to be, um, you know, among the best, among the fittest people on the planet now uh, don't exercise anymore. And, and cause they, they didn't make that transition to, to enjoying it. And I, I think we can unpack this more as, as we that's, talk. We, but... we will. And that's a great point because you know what the thing that's always startling to me, sometimes when you see even pro athletes later on in life, it's shocking how out of shape they are, you know, cause you say, oh, well, they've got older, but there are people their age in their sixties or seventies who look much fitter than them. And it's really a question of, was it injuries? You know, cause a lot of them had, a lot of them from the, you know, such careers would have chronic injuries. Uh, did they just let themselves go? Also, I think and the other thing I was gonna point out was that sometimes when you have such a passion for your sport and you reach a certain level, it's a little bit depressing to try to go back and even do some sort of exercise like that when you're not getting the same joy out of it. That's why I bring it up. I, I'm going to tell just a personal myself. I was a competitive tennis player growing up. I played, you know, high school tournaments. I played a little bit in college. And then, of course, you know, along came medical school and residency. And, you know, I became a little bit of a weekend warrior. I got injured a lot and I stopped playing. And then I just felt like I couldn't even attain the level that I had achieved earlier. So I, I stopped playing completely between that and the injuries. And I, and I transitioned to other things that just because I wanted to stay fit. Uh, for a while, I did walking, which was a little boring, but, you know, kept me a little bit fit. Biking became fun. And uh, I would try to do weights. We're going to get into this. But oh, invariably, I would always stop either again, injury or just boredom. And the blessing in my life is the last two, three years, uh, after a lot of injuries and everything through, and surgeries, I got back into tennis. And I'm playing pretty well for my level. And I just, it's just such a joy to be out there. And it's motivating me also to do the other components like stretching and trying to do some weights so I could stay in the game. So that's, that's why I was kind of like just, you know, touching on, you know, since you've done so much of the research and there's a lot of good things I want to get into the book, really even the technical things. But I thought that was an important overriding 
thing to discuss. Because again, I guess the bottom line is we all need goals or something that makes us really happy. Otherwise, we're not going to really stick with it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's a great place to start because look, uh, you know, my trajectory as a science journalist, I've been writing about the science of exercise for let's say 15 years. Mm -hmm. And because I came from that physics background, I, I have a very like uh, sort of show me the evidence, what's right. quantifiable, mm -hmm. let's optimize, let's what's the algorithm to exercise perfectly, right. which is a really like, it's a pretty widespread view in among a certain portion of society. There's a real optimizing, like, let's let's figure out exactly how to maximize our longevity. So I was interested in that. I was like, well, let's find out what the evidence is. And that's that's the origin of my science journalism career is I'm looking up the peer-reviewed evidence on whether it's better to do this workout or that workout or exactly how hard you should push. And I find this interesting and it's good. And especially coming from a running background, it's like, I, I I was always interested in like, should I be doing 10 times 400 or eight times 600? Like, exactly, right. These technical things matter. They're interesting and they matter, but the my evolution has been consistently in the last 15 years, realizing more and more that your first question is the important one. It's like, what are you enjoying it? What what is and in fact there's a there's a field of exercise psychology which has been kind of the the neglected subfield in exercise science, which is kind of coming to the fore now. And one of their big rallying cries is actually, you know, why is it that so many people don't get enough exercise? It's it's not. Yes, we're all busy, but it's not. We can all find time for like ten minutes a day. And and the sort of the push to hey. We can make a shorter workout. It's going to be five minutes. No, it's going to be three minutes. Oh, it's right. like that. You know, yeah, it gets ridiculous. You know, one of the things, just to go back to George Sheehan, you know, one of the things I read in his book, because I was, you know, he was a doctor, so he had, a, you know, a similar kind of life, work-life balance that I have. And what I found interesting is what I ended up doing a little bit in my own career, like George would say, like, he actually would go for his run midday. And I found it very interesting because I'm not biggest morning person. You're kind of getting up and rolling around. And, 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 you know, there are some people, I give them credit, they get up at 530 in the morning, they work out before they go to work. But, you know, they probably lose a lot more sleep than they could get. But George also, he again, he talks about this, that it was like his time to be in himself. It, it basically energized him when he would have that lull, you know, normally if he didn't run that day. And he actually looked forward to it, so it broke up the day. And, you know, when I've been fortunate, depending on my schedule, like I, I like midday workouts or, you know, that's probably my optimal time because in the morning, I'm just not ready for it. In the evening, I'm too tired, you know, so. Yeah. And this is another, this is a great example of, of something that I've, I've probably written at least half a dozen articles in the last 15 years on like exercise timing. When's the optimal time? Yes. And, and there's, mm -hmm. and you, if you look in on, on the web these days, you'll, you'll find lots of stuff on Oh, if you exercise before breakfast, you're going to optimize your fat burning because your right. glycogen stores are lower. These things are all true. But what I've, again, where I've moved to is when's the best time to exercise? When when it makes you feel good, when you're most exactly. likely to do it. And I, you know, I've had times in my life when I was in college, we, we at practice was after, was at 5.15 every day. And I, I wow. so I ran at 5.15 every day for four years. Now I go in the morning because that's when work it works in my life. The The, the 1% difference of like, optimizing fat burning is nothing compared to the hundred percent difference of did you do the workout? So, exactly. and, and, and we can, we can, I, I, I want to like get, foreshadow my answers. Too. Yeah. No, yeah I, I'm, I'm going to answer the same. The, 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 I think that theme will come up a lot. It's like, well, there's, a, there's evidence that a is slightly better than B, but a or B is better than Z where Z yeah. is not doing anything. You know, one of the things too, I, uh, I'm a New York times reader and I enjoy, uh, 
It's on Tuesday of the Science Times. And I do enjoy uh, Gretchen Reynolds, who you're probably familiar with. She writes the, the, the exercise columns for the New York Times. But one of the things which I really enjoy about having your book is that with, with Gretchen's articles, I mean, every week something different <laughs> is coming out because she's, she's looking at the journals. And, is, and I know in medicine, that's why I'm, you know, my approach in medicine too is I, you know, I don't jump on the headlines. Okay, this new study came out on 20 people that exercising, you know, right in the morning is the best for your sugar metabolism, you know, and then next week they find something else. So it's like a ping pong, you go back and forth, what's right. And I think you took a very measured, you know, overall look in your book, which is what I like. And I mean, that's what obviously you can do in a book because you're spending time, you're like, you know, procuring what, um, you know, what type of, uh, you know, material you're going to put in you know, that passes the test. And it can't be, you know, continually, you know, uh, contrarian, it gets very confusing for, for the reader. And, yeah, and that's I mean, what this I find. Is, this is one of the fundamental, like th maybe the biggest challenge of, of science journalism in general, but especially health journalism is trying to find the balance between like what's new versus how does this fit in with everything before? And so what I, what I, what I try and encourage people to think about is you should pay attention to new information. You should be willing to change your mind. But yes. you shouldn't, mm -hmm. you, you shouldn't, you should not be flapping back and forth like a, you know, like a screen door in, in, a, in yeah, a hurricane. Just... You, 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 a, new inf a new study that comes out that says, this is really good. You should add that to what you already know, both from, you know, previous science and from your own experiences. And it should move you a little bit. There's a, I mean, I'll, I'll put in a plug for a, a book called Super Forecasters, which came out a few years ago by Philip Tetlock, which mm. is, which is about, um, he studies like expert knowledge and, and, you know, political pundits. How often are they right? He, he one of his early studies oh, was like, yes, right, right, right. Let, let's actually check. And they're, they're terrible, but some people yeah. are really good. And the people who are good at assimilating complex information, they change their mind. They update their beliefs frequently, but only by small amounts. They don't say, oh, now coffee's going to kill me. Oh no, now coffee's going to save right, me. Oh no, right. now it's going to kill me again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask you a question and I'm only really asking it right now. Cause I don't want to give away the whole, you know, interest of this of our conversation, but it'll maybe give us the direction that we may go in first versus the other. So again, what caught my eye in the bookstore was which comes first, cardio or weights? And the reason it was important to me, again, I was mentioning in the introduction, like if I have time today, which I'm going to play tennis for about an hour and a half, and you know, I love it. And then I said, you know, it'll be good to do some weights, but kind of I'm, a lot of times I'm tired later. So some, I mean, obviously both are good, but what what is your I'll make you I'll have your commitment here. What is, what do you think should come first or oh, depends? Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Okay. Get, buckle up for the 90 yeah, minute I'm, answer. I'm, here. I'm no, I'll, try, I'll, I'll try. And, uh, I'll, I'll try. So there, there, I mean, there's two, two versions of that question. One is, which is more important. And one is like, what order you do, do you do the workout in? Why, so is that, in why, they, why, why is that different? Or is it depending on what your goals are? Well, let's say you're going to, there, 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 in some cases, people are going to do both. But they're 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 curious. When I go to the gym, should I start right. with a warm up on the treadmill or should I do the weights first? And, right. and right. Right. that's actually one of the you know one of the, when I wrote that book, there was some emerging research on the molecular response to exercise, showing that your body. I mean, to to sort of oversimplify, it, your your body can be in kind of uh, strength muscle building mode, or it can be in endurance building mode, uh, building right. mitochondria in your muscle cells. And it can't be actually be in both simultaneously, and it takes a little while to flip from one to the other. So that if you do whichever workout you do first, 
your response to that work or whichever part of the workout, your, your response is going to be a little bit biased towards responding more to the part of the workout you started with, in addition to the fact that you'll be fresher, so you'll be able to push harder and right. so on. This is a classic example now, as I say, you know, in the full maturity a few years later, uh, with more context, I would say a classic example of something that makes a marginal difference. Uh, and so it's like, you don't necessarily want to make your life and workout decisions based on, I think I'm going to get half a percent more, right. uh, uh, you know, it's going to be 50.5% to whatever I do first and 49%. So there is some interesting science there, but from a practical perspective, um, if you're doing both, then the order is not too important. Now, if you're only doing one, that's a, that's another question. Um, but I think, are, the, the, but the question you're you're basically saying is, you're, let's say I think I thought it's basically on the assumption you are going to be doing both. Let's just say in okay. a in a day. And the reason I'm asking too is because a lot of times you, know, you see ball players uh, like riding the bicycle, you know, the football players on the sideline before they go out to play. Um, you know, and you wonder again. Also, uh, I interviewed somebody really interesting uh, for the book Astrofit. Uh, Bill William Evans, very interesting guy. He used to work with the astronauts, you know, at NASA. And you know, it was just a question of like, do you warm your muscles up even before weight? You know, weightlifting just to get the circulation going, or do you not need to do that? But you know, again, I, the big thing is to not get injured because once you're injured, you're out of the game. You're on the sideline. Yeah, and so in that sense. So at, at some sort sort of cardio, some sort of aerobic exercise, I think it's fair to say is a good idea before you you push hard. And and what you said is exactly right. I mean, you are physically warming up your muscles, and you can think of that in the in the sense of like, let's say you have a piece of plasticine or play-doh or whatever. You hold, it's it's a lump of putty. You hold it in your hand as it warms up. It gets softer and more malleable. The same is true for your your uh, you, you know your your muscles and your connective tissue. So some gentle exercise that physically warms up your muscles and your your body is useful. Also, on a in terms of performance, the same thing is happening on a metabolic level. As you bring up the your body temperature, the metabolic reactions in your body are happening a little faster, and you're able to. Uh, you know, generate energy for your muscles, aerobic energy, a little bit more quickly. So there's, I mean, that's why athletes warm up before. A, 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 there, I mean, there's two basic reasons that athletes warm up before a competition is to hopefully minimize the risk of injury, but also because it does optimize performance a little bit. It's not like uh, when they do studies of like let's test warm up A versus warm up B versus warm up C. It's remarkable how small the differences are, uh, it, it, if any. Um, so. You don't want to. The, the, there's, there's the, the danger with this stuff is always the risk of a nocebo effect as opposed to a placebo effect. If you convince people that you cannot exercise without a 20 minute good warm up of all these stretches, then something goes wrong. You know, you're late for the game or you're late for your workout. You don't have time. And you think, well, I can't work out. Or I'm going to have right. a terrible risk. It's <laughs> like always an excuse somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you need to understand. We need to understand that these things are like the the optimum is maybe the best, but if things don't go well, if things aren't perfect, if you don't get a good warm up, and you actually can still do pretty well. Let me ask you this too. It's funny because it's always very striking, um, which is different than distance runners. You know, the sprint runners, uh, they are incredible athletes. I mean, you look at their legs, they're just super powerful. And then also, and they're not that heavy. You know, these people have to be lean because they're racing, you know, to get these amazing sprint times. And then also you hear, you know, that they do squats of, huge amounts of weights 
I mean, which obviously helps build up their legs. So how would somebody like that most likely train? Because they have to do their sprints, you know, to keep up their time. They're obviously having to do weights to keep, you know, to build up that big muscle to push them as fast as possible. Are they able to do things on the same day? Do they have to split it? I was just curious if you know, because it's obviously different than a distance runner where, I mean, even Sheehan said he, toward the end of his life, he said he regretted a little bit, like kind of ignoring the weight part of his yeah. workouts. He, he did he did do stretching because he knew it helped. It seemed to help him avoid back pain and, and other issues, but he never did any weights. And uh, so I was just, th- I was curious what you thought, like how they do he- this. Yeah, I mean, I, sprinters tend to be very, very careful uh, about not doing too much aerobic exercise. Um, they'll warm up before before sprinting, but um, there is uh, there is something called the interference effect, where which goes back to what we were just, I was talking about before, where your, your body is either in cardio building mode or muscle building mode, okay. and so if if you're really trying to optimize your hundred meter sprint time, uh, you can't be going out for five mile jogs on a regular basis. Um, now, I w- what I would say is in the same way that if you're a marathon runner and you run 100 miles a week and do no strength training, uh, if you're a sprinter and do n- nothing but hit the weight room all out and no aerobic exercise, neither of those extremes are mm-hmm. optimizing your long-range health and longevity and right. and, and function even. Um, they're okay if you're if for, for a while if, if you're an athlete, um, but... In the long run, and I say this as a, as someone who uh, is a long distance runner and spent a, a large part of my youth <laughs> focused on exclusively on yeah. on running long distances. Now I still what I enjoy is is endurance exercise, but I make an effort uh, a couple times a week to get in strength training because so I recognize. Could, so again, can you do them like like again? I'm curious to hear what the sprinters do and you do. Let's say there's a day that you're going to go for a five seven mile I don't know ten mile run. Will you lift weights that day or will you not? Because it's just, you know. I, I will, but I, I so there, there's a couple of schools of thought. One, when I was younger, the school of thought was um, when you're training for running, you, you might do uh, two or three really hard running workouts a week. And then the rest of the days were easy, sort of hard, easy alternating. And that you should do your weights on the after your hard workout because really? you need because you because you need to have because because running was the number one focus so you right. you didn't want to do weights on the day when your body's supposed to be recovering on the easy oh, run day. see that's interesting. i would have thought the opposite i would have thought oh you know the hard day you, know, you ran 10 miles you're exhausted how are you going to go in and and squat you know 150 200 pounds or whatever versus uh you know the easy day would be like okay this is my you know i'm not running 10 miles so maybe i'll do three miles you know for example and i'll get in that weight workout so you're saying no you gotta that's a recovery day essentially that that was certainly the approach that was prevalent when i you know 10 20 years ago mm-hmm. i think there's a there's been a you'll hear different i don't think there's a definitive answer to this and you'll if okay. you talk to athletes and coaches you'll hear different takes because i think in the last 10 years, I would say, even among long distance runners, there's been a move to emphasizing like heavyweights, not, not like pick up a five bell, five right, pound right, dumbbell right. and, 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 you oh, know, right. tweak it 20 times. It's like, no, let's get in and do squats and things like that. Right. And to do those, you have to, you can't be, I mean, it's not safe to be doing that after like a, a hard right. 10 you're mile run. T- so, you're too tired. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's, there's been a, maybe a shift to say, let's view the the resistance training as important enough to to do it uh, you know to to make time for it right but they also wouldn't do the weights for example 
like you know, we'll talk about this later about how it's supposed to be better to do weights later in the afternoon for you know physiological reasons. But but it's not like again, would they do like uh, the weights in the morning before they would go for their run, or it would be the other way around? Say they had to do both no, on no. the same day. It, you know, yeah. Again, it comes back to whatever is most important to you. You would do first to optimize that. You wouldn't. You wouldn't want to. If you have a run that matters to you, you wouldn't want to do that on extremely tired legs from okay. from weights. Now, I will say, just shifting from the sort of what do elite athletes do to how yeah, do we to, right, to, Let's say to us. Let's just, say right. Let's yeah. say we're going to do it in a modified form. I mean, look, I'm not competing for the Olympics. I assume you're not. So anymore. Right. I'll tell you what I do. I, yeah, I want to hear what you I, do. Right. I, I, I when I I don't I don't I find it difficult to have make time to do two workouts a day. I, I don't want to I, I don't want to shower twice. So <laughs> when when I if on the days that I'm doing strength training, I I combine it with a run. And if you ask me in theory, how would I like to do that? I it would be in theory, I would go for my run, enjoy my run, and then on fresh legs, and then come back and do my resistance training. In practice, what I find is that if I go out for my run and have a nice run. And everything's great. And then I'm having a good time. I'll go out maybe even a little longer than I intended. Then I'll come back and I'll like, oh man, I got to get my kids ready for school. I got this, I got that. And I'll cut short the, the strength training because right. I don't like it as much. Yeah. So what I do, even though it's maybe not physiologically optimal, but it's logistically optimal right. or motivationally optimal is I go, I start with my, at least, I, I get at least like two thirds or three quarters of my resistance training done. Uh, like I do, I do it. At, there's a park just down the street from me that has some good body weight uh, strength oh, nice. equipment. Okay. So I jog down the street. I do that. I go for my run. I come back. Maybe I do a few more things, but that way I can't shortchange myself. And if I shortchange myself, I'm losing the run, which I like rather than the resistance training. I don't. Yeah. So for me, it's not about physiology. It's about psychology. Well, that's what we were really trying to tie in. And, and I, I'm so like, you know, so nice to hear you say that because again, I, that exact same thing happens to me. Like, especially, you know, I'm in New York. We have a beautiful day. The first thing I want to do is not go downstairs in my basement and do some weights. I'm like, I want to get out there and run my bike in the wind and the sun. And, and, you know, and then, and like, as George Sian used to say, he goes, the, the first, the first hour of his exercise was for his body. The second was for his mind, you know, and I don't go as long as he does, but I feel I get all these good ideas when I'm riding my bike after the first half hour. And, you know, then I'll come back and hopefully if I'm not too tired, I'll also like you go, you know, try to do some of my weights. But typically I cut it short a little bit because I'm like, oh, no, I did two sets. I have to do a third set, you know, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah, I but, think we're all familiar with that. With that. Yeah, so I, I certainly am. Let's talk about something else, which is kind of interesting because um, it gets so much attention these days is uh, and, and our listeners may be familiar with is what's called the high intensity interval training hit. And. You know, again, unfortunately, a lot of us have heard the no pain, no gain. And then a lot of us know that that's not really maybe the, the best thing. But what's your take on that? Because obviously, HIT training gets a lot of good press in the last few years. Like, it's shorter. You push yourself. You get more benefit. I would tend to think it's highly unpleasant. I, I don't really do it. What, what's your take? I, I know you talk about it a little bit in the book. Yeah, um, yeah. Is it is it? safe or dangerous for, for, you know, the, the weekend warriors. What's, what's your take on that? So it was, in, it was interesting to me with it. It's it really started to emerge in the late two thousands around 2009. There was a bunch of studies that, that this is like the best way to exercise. And for people like me who came from a competitive running background, it was very odd because we were like, we've been doing that for 50 years. I mean, mm. Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile right. in 1954 yeah. based on a staple diet of 
10 by 10 times 400 meters, which is roughly, you know, 10 times a minute as hard as he could with two, maybe two minutes break, which is one of the classic hit workouts. So does it work? Yes. A hundred percent. It, it, it is a very effective way. Do elite athletes train by doing nothing but hit? No, but for the, 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 if you talk to a, a top runner, they'll, they'll certainly the, the way everyone I knew trained was you do one or two hit workouts a week and six or seven long steady runs. And so hit is like, it's, it's an, it's an ingredient in a training program, but it's not the whole meal. Now, in terms of, is this an effective, so again, you want to go to the Olympics, you're going to, in, as a runner, distance runner, you're going to do hit, uh, you're going to do interval training. Now, does that mean that it's useful or effective and or safe for everyone? Going back to what I said about like the exercise psychologists who are now saying like, it's not about time. What, what the, the, the people don't exercise, what they would argue or what some exercise psychologists very strongly argue is it's about whether people enjoy exercise. If we make it miserable, people don't do it. And that's why right. people don't do it. Right. And so there's a real strong pushback against this idea that you can do, you can get all the fitness you need from a seven minute workout as long as you vomit at the end of those seven minutes. Oh, uh, and, 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 and so uh, what, I, what I would say is there are people who, um, who find it fun, who find it more interesting to go out and push themselves hard for a minute at a time for, ten, you know, 10 times than to go for 30 minutes or 45 minutes of just steady. And I, I would say I'm actually one of those people in the sense that I do once a week, I do a hard workout like that and I enjoy it. I wouldn't want to do it four times a week. Like really? it, wow. once is enough, but for yeah. once a week and I do it with friends and it's, it's like, wow. it's, it's hmm. a fun highlight of my time. Really? But I think the, the sales pitch for hit is that it's time efficient and, and, and yeah. therefore yeah. you will do it. Well, that's, that's, yeah. that's useless if you won't do it. So you don't need to do it. It's there's lots of different roads that can achieve this similar fitness gains and what you need to do is do the one that you will do do the yeah, one that appeals i to guess you. yeah i to me it's very unappealing in so many ways you know the fact that to, to, to not feel relatively well to that's so short i mean part of the time is like this is your time your personal time yeah. that's the way i look I mean, at you, it by playing tennis you're doing something you're, you're you're getting some of those benefits you're getting short bursts of high intensity oh i know exercise. yeah oh. and so you're getting that in a way that's fun for you and that's right. that's infinite, you know it's interesting better. too and i'm sure our listeners know that and you know this what i found too because i hadn't played for about 15 years because i had these ankle surgeries and i was scared to play again and i kind of said after COVID, I'm like, I, I gotta go back to this. I just, I, I love the game. I love watching it. And I was biking for a while over the years to try to stay in good shape. You know, nothing crazy, but good shape. But it was such a different um, intensity. I mean, you know, the first few times over the summer when I was playing, I was like doubled over, you know? And I was like, yeah, oh my yeah. God. I said, I, I didn't realize I was this bad of shape. It was just so different. Absolutely. And so, you know, I picked up, I, I played basketball in high school pretty seriously. And then I, I moved away and focused on running. And uh, maybe three, four years ago, I, I found a, a group of friends. I joined a, a Friday night, just pickup game. And look, I, I'm, I write about exercise. I've been running pretty much every day for, you know, my whole adult life, including some very hard running. I'm, I'm a fit guy. You look good. Yeah. You look like you're fit. <laughs> play, five minutes into playing basketball. Yeah. It's different. I was like, I can't, I'm dying. You know, right, it's, right, it's, right. it's different movement. It's different intense, like sprinting or like yeah. going for a loose ball or, or, you know, for, 
for 10 meters is totally different from going out for a jog. And it's it's amazing. It's great yeah, it to have different stimuli. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the things I want to bring up to the listeners, because I remember when I first heard this, it was really, gosh, like 20, 25 years ago, because I actually, I did a, um, a special training with Dean Ornish out in California. I've never heard of him. He did a lot with heart disease. And, you know, part of his program was exercise. Nothing, ser- you know, too serious, but it was important. But he talked about something called the Bork scale, B-O-R-G, and I had never heard of it. Uh, and I remember even when they discussed it, I was like, what are they really talking about? And over the years, what I came to appreciate, it was also it was a funny scale. It, it was, I guess, based on heart rate, because like six was like considered, you know, like good or, you know, you know, whatever, you know, what your body should be at. And, and beyond that was obviously more intense exertion. Below that was too little, I believe. But the thing what I've come to appreciate, and I, and I think, I'm curious about your opinion, but I want my the listeners to be aware of it. I see. I don't like working out with trainers. I prefer to work out with myself. And I know sometimes that can let you maybe not always achieve your optimal results. But on the other hand, I like to read what my body's like because I might have had a really rough week at work where it's been very intense with patients, and my body's telling me I can't go that strong. Uh, I also had a, also a very negative experience once. I, I'll not forget this. <laughs> I was in medical residency, which was pretty intense. And I was like on and off call for 24 hours at a time working in the coronary care unit. And I, you know, but I was young, I was like 25 years old. And I was like, I gotta stay in shape, you know, even though I hadn't slept a lot. So I said, okay, and I need to, I need some help. So I, you know, went to one of those New York sports clubs and they had a guy that, you know, trained and they give you like a free session. So, I, you know, I signed up with him and, you know, he's taking me through the workout and then he has me doing uh, lunges with like 10 pound weights in my hands. And I must've, I must've done the first, this was again after night on call and I must've done the first set. I was like, okay, good, whatever. This is me. The second set into the second set, I passed out (laughs) and the guy was like, looking at me like, what's wrong with you? Are you a wimp? Why can't you do this? And I'm like, I'm like seeing stars. So that was the end of my workout with trainers and stuff. And I started to realize over the years that it, it's it's how you feel. I mean, if, I, if there's a certain day, and we're going to get this, because this is what's interesting in your other book, Endure, you know, that, you know, how, what's your perception of how the, again, let's say the, the average, you know, we'll call it weekend warrior, how, how much should they pay attention to their perceived exertion in working out. So, yeah, I, you know, I would say the Borg scale as in, in technical terms, the perceived exertion is, is the master switch to exercise. And, you know, we live in an age where you can buy all sorts of wearable tech devices, uh, you know, watches and straps and rings yeah, and things right. that pur- purport to, um, and not just purport to, that, that, that give you all sorts of information about what's going on inside your body. Right. None of that is as accurate as the sort of central processing unit in your brain that is integrating all the information about how you're feeling. And and as you said, it's not just how hard am I breathing and how hard is my heart pounding? It's what else is going on in my life? What, you know, how much sleep did I get last night? How much stress am I under at work? All these forms of stress are, are converted to the common currency of how much your body and your mind can handle. And they're converted into a sensation of how, you know, w- one of the definitions in the literature for, for, for your sense of effort is it's the effort is the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. How hard is it to keep doing whatever it is you're doing? Right. And uh, it, 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 there is no more reliable barometer than being able to sense how hard you're going and to, to recognize when actually, you know what, I'm, I'm just kind of literally dipping right now. I'm not, maybe I should push harder or, 
this feels harder than it does most weeks. Maybe I should back off because even though I'm going the same pace I usually do, it feels harder. And that, that, that tells me that my body needs more recovery. So I am absolutely, I mean, and I, I, you know, in, in endure the, the most recent book, I go into some of the research that suggests that really your sense of effort is not just a good barometer of how you're feeling. It's, it's what dictates your, your, your ultimate limits. Like it, it, at the point at which you pass out or do well doing the, the, uh, uh, the lunges or fall off the back of the treadmill. I mean, really your sense of effort is your brain's number one, uh, or its best estimate of how much you can handle and how hard you're pushing yourself. The part of it is a little bit the chicken and the egg, because let's say there's a, you know, this is going to sound crazy, but obviously if it's sunny out, I have more energy <laughs> and I can see, I can go down, I can do it. If it's a really cloudy, crummy day, I'm like, oh, this is a day to take a pass. I just don't feel it. What is the dividing line between saying, you know, it's a little bit too much mental. I just don't want to do it versus, you know starting to do the workout and the body's just not responding. I mean, how do you, how do you read that? That's what I guess I'm, and I'm asking a tough question, but yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's a, a, a not one with an easy answer. Cause yeah, there's a bunch of really fascinating research that shows how various factors can affect your perception of the same effort. And it's like, if there's pictures of smiling faces on the wall, you'll perceive a given effort as slightly easier. And you know, there's, there's even, there's funny, there's interesting studies of like, you know, you put on a backpack and, and you're, you estimate how heavy it is. And if you're looking at, a, a, you know, if there's a tall mountain in front of you, you estimate that the backpack is heavier because right. you're like, oh man, I don't want to carry right. up that mountain. Right. And it, it's not conscious. It's just your perception of like, what are the demands being placed on? So absolutely it's not, perception of effort isn't, um, it's, it's, it's not like taking the temperature uh, of the air where you're going to get the same measurement every time. And you have to recognize that and you have to kind of be aware that, but, you know, a great example of that is, let's say, as a runner, what what I learned is that when I was, if I have a big race, when I had a big race, I would wake up in the morning and I'd be like, get and start walking up the stairs. And I, oh my God, my legs are tired. Oh, I can mm. barely move. Something is wrong with me. I'm, I'm losing. It's like, no, my mind knows that I'm about to ask it to do something really hard. And so it's trying, it's, it's altering my perception of effort out of, out of nervousness. So you have to watch out for those things, but also, also you have to respect them. I mean, if you're, yeah. if, uh, and, and I don't think there's a, there's an easy answer. There's not like on two Tuesdays, you ignore your effort and push yourself. And on Thursdays, you respect the effort. It's... you have to, you have to find the balance. And if you're, if you're getting fit and staying fit, then maybe you're doing well. And if you're not, then maybe you need to say, okay, I need to like change how I'm responding to those effort signals and push myself a little harder. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good answer. I have something else too, which is funny because, uh, in the Tuesday New York Times back in October, Danielle Friedman wrote a little bit of an article about, you know, making strength training a habit. And you, and you touch a little bit of this in your book also, but I, I had an idea about this, you know, because they basically say, and let's say uh, Danielle Friedman said in her article that, you know, wear anything that's comfortable. You know, that's, it's important, obviously, you know, to when you're doing training, but I have a different take on it. My take is wear things that are going to make you excited. You know, when I go to play tennis now, I love like wearing some kind of new shirt I got or shorts, you know, for a while when I used to bike, I used to just wear my sweats. Then I got the biking gear because at the beginning I thought, oh, these guys are crazy. What do they think? They're so professional with all their biking stuff. But I realized it got me in the Lance Armstrong mindset. And again, also too, sometimes I'll put music on, you know, because sometimes I don't really feel like listening to music, but if I put it on, I feel a little bit more energy to work out. Do you, do you find that the setting that you 
you know, because also I'm sure like a lot of people too, they take their workout clothes out, you know, that, that, that the day before or whatever too, you're, you're kind of gearing your brain to say, this is something I want to do. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there's, there's a million different ways to, to kind of flip that switch. Um, but it's, it's important. I, I, you know, one of the tricks that I find, you know, I, I run, let's say six days a week and I have for, for wow. years, wow. Does, I, I don't always want to run. And especially when I look out the window and it's just above freezing and it's raining or something like that. Where, where do you live? Uh, Toronto. Oh yeah. So, so, it's, so let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you we, 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 we get some cold weather. We get some miserable yeah. weather. Um, but so like my, my, my trick or my, my approach is I, I tell myself, you have to go out the door, Alex. You don't have to run for, you can go for five minutes if you don't feel good, but you have to go out the door okay. because what over the years I've found that getting started is the hardest thing. And once I get out the door, there are times when life is crazy. I might get out there and I go five minutes and then turn around. But most of the time, once I'm out there, I'm like, ah, this isn't so bad. In fact, it's kind of nice to be outside. It's kind of nice to have some time for myself. But so that getting started thing, whatever tricks you can find for yourself, whether it's, uh, you know, the music, the setting, the clothing, just what, uh, arranging to meet a friend, anything that gets you started, uh, it's so much easier once yeah. you started. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, I'm going to jump to this because I want to get to the weights in a minute too. But the fact that you said you work, you run six days a week, which is terrific. That's why you look like you're in such lean, good shape. How do you deal with whatever it's the soreness, you know, the recovery? How, do you have any special, you know, type of things? Like, you know, someone recently told me I started doing the, uh, the uh, Epsom salt baths, you know, just to, you know, for the magnesium in there, for the, you know, to, to soothe the muscles. I mean, what's your reward and what do you do to, I mean, because to be out there six days a week, and as I think I read somewhere, it probably even in your book, I think like 70% of the people who run pretty, pretty much your kind of mileage are injured. Injuries are a definite risk and, and finding the right. So here's, here's the secret to running yes. six days a week. Yeah. Running six days a week is easy when you used to run 12 days a week. 12, 12 times a week. So oh. for me, six, okay. six, you know, when I was training seriously, I was running, I was typically, I was running 10, 10 days, 10 times a week, let's say. Oh, wow. So double some days. So, and, and I got injured, not, not infrequently, you know, pushing my limits and, and it wasn't always a ton of fun. So at this point, because I have decades of experience running six days a week is pretty comfortable for me, especially because four of those days are just easy light jogs. So okay. I've, I've found a level that is uh, sustainable and comfortable for me. Now, everyone's level is different depending on wh where they're coming from, what their background is. So I'm not saying that six days a week is, is right for everyone. Um, and, and there's times when I like to, if let's say I've decided to sign up for a race, then I'll, I'll I might push myself and go a, a little harder uh, for, for time. But I, uh, in general, in terms of longevity, I'm pretty careful about if I if I if I have a run or a workout that leaves me sore the next day, I really back off and I. Oh, you and do. I, so I, that's why you're listening to your body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, look, as again, as a science journalist, I've spent a lot of time writing about the research on ice baths and massage and cryotherapy and. Uh, all the various devices that pro athletes, uh, you know, spend, it's, it's a, you know, 
multi-billion dollar industry right. these days. Right. You need the time and the money to do all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and even then, if you've got the time, you've got the money, the evidence <laughs> is super, super weak that there's any, there's, there's much of an effect for most of these things. Not that th there may be some, it's not that it's not They're that They're looking for any kind of edge, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah, look, if you're, if, if you score one extra point or, or, you know, if you're a golfer and you manage to shoot one fewer stroke and it gets you an extra $10 million, search for every edge. But for most of us, the the most effective exercise recovery or injury avoidance tactic is being smart about the you know the training you're doing is having a good plan in the first place and adjusting the plan when you need to i know that's easier said than done like i don't mean to make it sound like i'm, no, I mean, I'm look, saying something deep yeah, but yeah um it's, it's a lot easier to to avoid damage than it is to fix it once fix something once it's damaged yeah. once you've once you've done damage to your muscles you can't undamage it you, you can dull the pain but it's it's much better to avoid the damage in the first place yeah you know george Cian said also i always thought he was so wise in his advice that like, you know and again he was like basically addicted to the running it relieved his stress it it freed him up in so many ways but and he would get injured you know he used to stretch a little bit he said that helped but what he would he used to say he goes up oh, as soon as i tore a hamstring or this and that too it was either the bike or the pool you know he had to switch you know modes of exercise to stay to stay active uh but it's obviously better to yeah, you know, if you can be careful to read your body to to avoid that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you too because you mentioned this. Like, why do you still compete? Is it the juices are still there? I mean, is it you know because you know it's. I mean, obviously, I think you probably do a lot of the exercising for mental and for health benefits. What's the reasoning at this point to compete? Just to see what you could still do. You know, I. I ask myself this question. Or is it a goal to keep you? to a race. You know, it's, it's, it's. Well, does it keep I, you motivated to, I mean, like when you know you have a race, like if you had Alex, if you had a race in a month, you know, most likely your brain's going every day. Like I got to do my workouts versus if you're not, you're like, okay, you know, maybe not today, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, this question is one that my wife is a runner too. And in oh, yeah. the same, same, same stage of life as me. And we, we ask ourselves this, we're like, why did, why are we signing up for this race? Like we're, we know we're not going to get faster than we were when we were in our twenties. Like what, what are we doing now? Like, and it's, it's not easy. It's, we both feel like we want to do this, but it's not easy to articulate why. But I think for me, one of the, maybe the most powerful thing is not that I enjoy the race necessarily, but that I enjoy the journey to the race. And so- Right, so it's, if, it's giving you that goal to- Yeah, running yes. can, running. I will admit, I love running, but running can get boring if, yes. if it's like 365 days a year, it's wake up and go and run the same route. So I, I sign up for that race and all of a sudden the next six to eight weeks of training have meaning and I'm excited to go do a workout with my friends because I, this is gonna help me towards the race. Once I get to the race, I'm like, Oh God, why did I sign up for this? This is, you know, now I'm going to suffer and it's nerve wracking, but it gave me eight weeks of, of meaning and, and progression and, and kind of interest and excitement. And, um, you know, some, some, I enjoy having race too. And it's fun to see what I can do. Even, even now that I'm much slower than I was 20 years ago, it's, it's, it's fun to challenge myself and push myself. But I think fundamentally it's, it's about the giving myself a destination for my you know, my yeah, semi-annual journey. That makes sense. That makes and we all need goals. But you brought up something else interesting. I didn't even think about it all to ask you, but now that, that you brought it up, I think it is important. First of all, if you're a serious runner like you are, is it important to find a spouse, a partner who also likes running because you end up spending a lot of time doing it and otherwise you'll be a separate? And part two, is it important because George Sheehan talked about this also at you know, I think it was really more toward the end of his life 
when you know he used to love to go out for his solo runs because it was again a time for his mind to you know basically think and it, you know he was a thinker he was an introvert like I am but later on he said he goes he really got a lot of joy out of meeting up with people and going for a nice run in a group so what are the uh the pros and cons of all that of the uh doing it as a group versus individual yeah yeah so I, I talked to a researcher a few years ago who who studied like group exercise, um, and he he said, and and there's there's definitely lots of evidence that um, people are more likely to stick to a program on average if they are part of a group, and and the extent of the 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 what he called the groupiness of the group predicts how well people stick. Some groups are just kind of a bunch of people who are showing up at the same time. Right. Other groups are like a, they feel connected. Right. But what what he also said is like. That's true for about two thirds of people. About two thirds of of people, or, or maybe you know, he said about one third of people were really strongly like the group really mattered. One third were kind of in the middle, but for those two thirds, groups mattered, and one third actually preferred to to be on their own. So I I, I don't think anyone needs to feel like they're doing it wrong if they're yeah uh, if they're doing it alone and like it. For me, uh, just the mix of logistics of life uh, means right. that I, I do most of my runs on my own. But every Saturday morning, my wife and I make it a priority to meet up with our respective groups of friends oh, really? for, for runs. And then maybe one other time a week, I'll try and hook up with a friend for a run. And and that has a lot of meaning because you know these are friends. Can you talk while you're running? Because I mean, or you, you at the pace that you run, you're able. I mean, is it more like just having sort of that sense of company or are you actually having a conversation while you're running? I mean, I, I'm super glad you asked that because that's a great question. Um, the, the talk test is a great barometer of whether you're exercising at an appropriate intensity. So I would, for top runners, for, for, for the, the, the ratio is they do about 80% of their running at a pace where they can comfortably talk in complete sentences. 20% of it's hard. And when on Saturday mornings, when I meet up with my friends, we do some of that 20% where it is too hard to talk for part of the time. But most of the time, certainly during our warm-ups and warm-downs, we can talk. And most of my runs, most most of my runs are at a pace where I could comfortably talk. And that, that I think, is one, it's a huge, huge kind of misunderstanding of what it takes to exercise on a regular basis that you should go out there and be pushing so hard that you can't talk most of the time. Uh, I wouldn't be running six days a week after 20 years, if every day I had to go out and push myself that hard, it's, it's, it's actually quite pleasant because I've been running so long, the pace, the effort that I'm running at most days is not much different from like a brisk walk for someone who's, who's, uh, who hasn't it. been exercising. Oh, I get that's, that's really important by the way, too. Right. And you were an yeah, elite, yeah. you're an elite runner. I mean, sometimes also I see people on the road too, and they're like, they look like they're going so slow. But I realized they must be going miles and miles and miles. And as, as we all know, too, brisk walking. Actually, I'm going to tell you a really funny story quickly, right? Because that brings up something interesting. But but one other question before I do that. the Do you find also just having other uh, people around you kind of also pushes you in a way, too, in the sense that, like, if you were going to, like, oh, I'm just going to really take this super slow today. But, you know, you're going with some of your friends and you want to keep up with them. That And, again, this is for the average person that you, you want to – You'll, you'll, it'll keep a certain pace because you're trying to stay together in a group. Is that yeah? And and you know this is a double-edged sword, so you have to think a little bit about who who you're meeting up with. So, like I said, on Saturday mornings I meet up with friends. That's my, one of my hard runs, hardest runs of the week. Oh, really? And so we do push each other. We do, okay. and 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 I, I there's no doubt that I and there's lots of studies too that show that the presence of another person uh, can help you push harder than you would you you would otherwise. That 
on days when you're trying to have an easy recovery day, that's actually a real risk factor if you're trying to keep up with your faster Got friend it. on a day when you're trying so you to- gotta really have relax. your plan in place of what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, or or at least be, be willing to call your friend out if they keep uh, two-stepping you, as it's called, or half-stepping yeah, you it is, when, yeah. when you're trying to run. Yeah. I have to tell the, the listeners a funny story, actually, an interesting story. You know, because again, as I said, being a doctor, you know, which I love what I do and I love I can help people, is also you really have an inside seat to seeing human condition nature like none other, really. And I was in a medical residency back in the, uh, in the late uh, 1980s, and I was working in the emergency room, and it was a night shift, uh, and it was in the summer. I'll never forget this. And... Uh, Somebody came in and um, he had apparently been, our uh, hospital was right near Central Park. He'd been running in the, he, he was in the park. That's what I'd heard. He was in the park. He fell and he had this big gash on his head. So the nurse set him up in one of the rooms, you know, and he has, you know, one of the, uh, what they call the sterile like gown um, sheets over his head, you know, so everything else is clean. And I came in, I was going to come in and suture, you know, the area. So I come in, you know, again, it's like 12 o'clock at night and uh, you know, I'm coming in just to sew this guy up and then send him off on his way because nothing else was serious. But, you know, again, before we did it, we looked at his age. I think he was like 70. You know, I said, uh, okay, you know, run an EKG, just make sure, you know, maybe, you know, God forbid he had a heart condition or something that why he fell. We don't know why he fell. So uh, I'm sitting by the head of the bed where, you know, the, all the, you know, the suture materials are and he's got this, you know, sheet over him with a, so I can sew up his, the, the, the wound, but you know, it's the summertime and he doesn't have, you know, I can see his legs and I realize I look at his thing. He's 70 years old. The nurse brings me his EKG as I'm getting ready to sew him up. The EKG was perfect. Right. And I'm looking at his legs and they're like rocks. They're like the most sculptured legs I've ever seen. And his upper body was extremely thin, you know? And so as I'm sewing him and he was wide awake, you know, I'm talking to him and I said to him like, wow, I said, what do you do? I said that you, you know, your legs are incredible, you know? And he goes, he goes, I'm a professional race walker. And I found it fascinating. I never forgot this because, because what he said to me was that after I sewed him up, we were talking for a few minutes, you know, he got into doing this. He said, the great thing was, you know, it was good exercise. I mean, he had the whole form and everything he was showing me. He goes, I never get injured, you know, and it was, it was impressive to me how, again, staying in the game, you know, I mean, the, the guy's heart was like of a 20, like mine, 25 year old at the time. And here he was 70 years old, you know, super fit. And I'm sure all the other benefits of exercise, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can get it from walking. Although those race walkers can move pretty fast. They, they, right? They, uh, I mean, that, it's amazing how they do that. I've tried to even do it. I can't do it. You know, it's like where you're not allowed to, I don't know, something with your foot can't. Yeah, you can't. Your knee much. has to be straight when it hits the ground or something. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, right. A, it's, a, right. it's a whole different skill. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm going to move on to, because we're kind of getting near the winding up, but what they used to be with strength training. Uh, again, something that I, you know, you like doing it because you kind of feel good a little bit mentally after you do it. Although I'm very careful not to go too high in the weights because I just always find I always tear something or I get injured. But what is it all with this whole thing about three sets of something? Or, you know, some people say just do your, I don't know, what is it, 70% of your two or three set, you know, two or three repetition max. I mean, what what do you do and what do you suggest that, you know, the average person who's trying to, you know, they're not looking to become a bodybuilder. You know, they're looking to get some strength. So, 
as they age, they're more fit. And again, for like, I'm interested for certain sports and stuff like that. What, what, what would you, what's your sort of overall gist? Yeah. That? You know, I mean, look, there's, there's 20 page position stands on, on the difference between, you know, five sets of, of 80% max versus two sets of the, you know, whether you're optimizing strength or muscle size or endurance. The bottom line for me, and there's been some good research over the last decade that, that kind of, punctures the myths that it really, really matters what you do, how many you do, how many sets or how many reps that in, in fact, what matters is how hard you're pushing your body. And it comes back to this idea of perceived effort. And so you, you can do, you know, 10 reps of a heavy or eight reps of a heavy weight or 20 reps of a lighter weight. And if you reach the same level of fatigue, it's almost equivalent for your body. And so the idea, I think, the advice that I would give is pick a weight that's comfortable for you, that you know doesn't scare you to pick it up, and lift it the number of times that brings you, let's say, uh, within a, a couple of reps of failure. So, you, but it, even at, even at the beginning, Alex, let's say when you're first starting, so you don't get injured. I mean, let, let, let's just say somebody couldn't do uh, eight pounds you know, sets of like 10, three sets of 10, eight pounds, but they don't feel too bad. But if they would go to 15, they could probably maybe do four. What, what are they better off doing? Are they better off like like working up to the 15? You know, because, uh, you know, then unfortunately, like the next day you're working like, oh my God, I pulled my uh, my biceps muscle, you know, this, you know, where they're sore yeah. for a week, you know, and they... So I think that the the it's important to to work up gradually and be consistent. Uh, and so sticking to lighter weights is probably um, a good place to start. Uh, to me, the big, I, you know, I don't want to do like 30 reps of something no, uh, it's so because boring. it's like, it gets boring. So I, I, for me, the sweet spot is somewhere around the 10 rep range. 10, if, is, if, right? if I can't do 10, I, I, th then I lighten the weight. If I can't, if I, if I can do 15 or 20, then I'm like, I need a heavier weight. Although okay. I, I, I have kettlebells at home and it's like, I only have a finite number of kettlebells. So I can't, right, and, but, yeah, so, right. <laughs> but, but the upshot is that I don't need to worry about whether it's taking me 10 reps or 12 reps or eight reps to get uh, to that, not quite at failure stage. As long yeah. as I'm pushing hard enough to be not that I can't do anymore, but that I know that in another few reps, I would get to that stage, then you're fine. And, and the one versus two versus three reps uh, sets thing, it's the, the latest research that I'm that I've seen is that it doesn't make as much of a difference as as as, as you think. Uh, okay. I, I would I tend to try and do at least two sets because volume, yeah, two to three sets. I would I don't do ever more than three sets of something right. for my personal so, goals. Yeah, um, if I have time for one set, I do one set. Okay, that's great advice. Um, you know, as we're winding down, I wanted to ask you about indoor. You know, I read the book. Um, I mean, I love your writing. Uh, but I'm not sure I got the, you know, it might be my shortcoming. I'm not sure I got the gist of what it's really about with, with the limits and human performance. So would you mind maybe sharing with the listeners who may want to read this, what, you know, what is your sort of overall takeaway or what maybe the sure, salient yeah. points of the book? So what the book, the question I wanted to answer in, in Endure is like, is what defines our limits? So I, you know, as a, as a racer, uh, I, I certainly encountered limits. You know, you, you get to three quarters of the way through a race and you're like, someone's pulling away from you and you're like, I can't go any faster. Now it's not true that your legs don't work anymore because you know, you can, you're still running, but you just right. feel like you've reached your limit or to put it in a simpler place. It's like, 
you get on a treadmill, you dial in a speed and you run at that speed until you fall off the back. Right. What determines when you fall off the back of the treadmill? And this question seems really easy and it's it's not. It's absolutely not because okay. you can you can wire up a person. You could and, and take you t- tell the scientists take any measurements you want on this person while they're on the treadmill and you tell me which one is going to tell t- predict when the guy falls off the treadmill. There's you can fall off the treadmill when your heart rate isn't maxed out, your breathing isn't maxed out, your muscles still work. Like there's there's no reliable way of predicting exactly where your limits are. And so over the last 20 years, there's been a real shift in exercise science, moving away from the idea that the body is just a machine. That's like a car. It runs out of gas and that's when we stop to the sort of understanding that there's a driver in the car and that's the brain. And so if there was one message that I would sort of say, I came to the conclusion of after researching the book, it's that when you feel you've gone, you've pushed as hard as you can, that's not a sign that your body is failing, has reached its failure point. It's a sign that your brain has determined that it's a good, uh, to, you know, for your own protection, this is close enough to the to the edge mm-hmm. of the cliff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and, a good this, point for your own protection. I think that I like to just emphasize that because, you know, again, sometimes you, we know that, you know, people like in football practice, they have coaches who keep on pushing them and pushing them you know, to get them to go the max. And maybe that's dangerous. Maybe something yeah. internal in them knows that it's not that they're lazy. They're, you know, it's just that maybe the, 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 the heat or the conditions or whatever it is, is the brain's like sort of sending them a signal. Hey, this is, this is the, the max on the gauge. That, that's absolutely true. Uh, I would go back to what you said earlier, just as an additional point about, Sometimes on a beautiful sunny day, you go out and you just feel like pushing harder. And so what this says is, let's say you go out on a cloudy, gloomy day and you don't feel like pushing harder. You you should be, you you should understand that part of the way you're feeling might be a a consequence of not that your legs can't go, but this is just how you're feeling. And you want to be able to get around that. And there are ways with sports psychology, with positive self-talk to say, no, I'm capable of pushing that can help you access those in general, our, our limits are quite conservative. They're quite, Mm. there's a lot of safety margin. And so learning how in the right circumstances to, to, to push a little bit beyond where you might think your limits are can be really empowering, but you're absolutely right that there's times when you have to respect what your body's telling you. Yeah. I guess what you're saying, which makes sense, there's always more tank in the gas. And, you know, one of the great, uh, I think it was a recent study in the last few years was, I believe what they call it like the swish and spit test, like where, you know, as you know, where I, whether it was cyclists or runners, they would, they wanted to know if it was the blood sugar dropping. So they used to have them like swish a Gatorade in their mouth or some sugary drink, but actually spit it out and not drink it. And they were able to go yeah, you know, they were able to endure more pain or distance or whatever they were doing, which I think the researchers found remarkable because they knew by spitting it out, they got no extra blood uh, sugar in their body. Yeah. And this, the, you know, this finding I think is really powerful because it's not just a placebo effect. The, the first reaction for people is like, oh, well, they, they just had a placebo effect, but it doesn't work with artificially sweetened drinks. So you have an artificially sweetened drink, you rinse and spit it, you don't get any benefit, but your brain can sense oh, when there's sugar. That there's some there's unknown sensors in your mouth that can tell when there's sugar in your mouth. And then you spit it out so you don't get any metabolic benefit. From right. It. But it enhances it consistently enhances your performance and it works better if you're hungry. 
So it's like, there's all these things your brain is trying to predict. Is there fuel on the way? How much right, farther are we right. going to go? That's why you, you, you ran the corner, the, the last corner of the 5k race, everyone sprints, right? Everyone. Right. And that's not because they suddenly have more energy in their legs. It's because their brain knows, okay, we're finally going to stop. We can, we can release some that's of right, these right. reserves they see, that we've been holding back. Yeah. They see, they see land <laughs> at the beginning of the ocean. Exactly. You know, it's funny too, Lance Armstrong, who was always like a big, I was just always a big fan. I was it's so tragic what happened with him, but he used to always say too, in his book, uh, it's not about the bike. He said, he goes, part of his motivation whenever things got really tough, like climbing up those mountains was, I want to make the other guy feel the pain. <laughs> so he was able to somehow transfer his own pain to say, that guy's got to be hurting more and I'm going to make him hurt more, you know? So it's just fascinating how the mind can be used to, to push the limits of, of your ability. And of course, yeah, that's what in those cases makes champions. And I think that, you know, this is 20 years ago for a pro athlete to have a sports psychologist was considered a sign of weakness. Now right. it's like, hey, there's no protein that doesn't have a sports psychologist. And I think that's finally starting to trickle down to the sort of the rest of us that, maybe it's worth paying attention to the thoughts in our heads and, and how that affects how we feel when we exercise and, and getting in the right mindset and, and the right frame of mind to 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 get our, our own workouts in. Yeah. Well, Alex, this was such a treat for me. I mean, I can't tell my listeners how privileged I feel to get to interview people who re- who've written books that I just really enjoy. And uh, to this was uh, definitely uh, what I was hoping for. Where can our listeners continue to follow you, like where you're doing your writing. I don't know if you have a website or blog videos, where, where can they, we send them? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I have a website. It's alexhutchinson.net. Um, I, I write a, a week, a, roughly once a week. I have a column on outside ma- magazines, website outside online.com. And each time it's basically looking at a new study about endurance or fitness or health and, and sort of dissecting what it tells us and what it doesn't. Um, on Twitter, my handle is sweat science. So those are all good places. What's it called? Sweat. Sweat science, all one sweat word. Sweat science, yeah. right. Okay, right. That's right. <laughs> also sweet science, the sweat science. Yeah, I know. I, I had to do a double take on that. I know I saw that somewhere. I know it was like on the, the back of one of your books. So anyway, thank you, Alex, again, for making the time. This was a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back in the future. Thanks, Dean. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right, great. Good. I'm glad you're feeling better, too. Take care. 